This episode of the SaaS Revolution Show is sponsored by Oyster. Oyster is the global HR platform that makes it easy to employ people remotely in other countries. It's purpose-built for globally distributed organizations that want to tap the global talent pool and give all their employees around the world a great employment experience. Oyster lets you hire, pay, and give great local benefits in over 75 countries. To find out more, visit oysterhr.com. You're going to have a culture. I don't think it's possible for a company not to have a culture. I think the big difference here is that the culture you want or not. And if you want to make sure that you're going to have the culture you want, you should be intentional about it. You should design the culture instead of letting things happen. Uh, so my name's Stephen Cummins. Um, I'm, I've been in SaaS for 18 years. I was part of Salesforce as a startup and I've worked in many different areas. I'm a founder, CEO of my own right. Uh, I, my, the biggest thing I do right now is work for Alex Toyman, the amazing SaaS stock team, team across uh, various areas that uh, where they're becoming a subscription company across media. Uh, and I have a lot of fun uh, with these amazing guys. It is my privilege to uh, introduce someone I've actually introduced interviewed twice in the past when he was CEO of a far smaller company in 2017, but still was a happening company already. And again in 2018, and we had lunch and I've met him a few times in, in different areas. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm delighted to see him, to see him here again. Uh, he's always very generous with his time. He's the CEO, original CEO and founder of Algolia, which is kind of API, one of those APIs as a service companies, but like SendGrid, Twilio, but for the search component. So for B2B search, for company search. So when companies want their products and websites to be, uh, you know, to have really fast search and really relevant search, um, Algolia came in and took their inspiration from Google, which had set our expectations so high, but companies could match it to actually match that and sometimes better that within companies. And I saw it happen in action actually a Dreamforce before I met Nicola, they went and made Salesforce's search way better, you know, and that's a pretty serious company, but uh, they were able to make it so much better in, in a couple of hours. Uh, it, was, it was, I couldn't believe what they did. So, um, and Nicola is, is an engineer by training. I think he's got a PhD. Uh, he's uh, definitely, um, when it comes to culture, he's, he's the first person that comes into my mind uh, when I'm talking to people in, in the domain. Um, he left, uh, he left Algolia, not a CEO. He's still with Algolia as a director on, on the board of directors. And, uh, uh, he's still very much involved, uh, somebody who, who helped grow the, the company and drove it. Um, but he's moved to Y Combinator, Pember on his first cohort. So he's also talking with a lot of founders of early stage companies. So, so without further ado, uh, Nicola, uh, fantastic to see you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Stephen. I mean, I don't know what I can add. Like you kind of described everything about me and Algoy already. Okay. Well, I'll, well, let's start off with uh, one of the things I remember you telling me was when I actually asked you, what's the thing you're most proud of uh, professionally? And you said it was the culture you created in or helped create in Algolia. Talk to me about that. <laughs> okay. Let's start there. No. Uh, I still stand by that comment uh, still today. I think the culture, you know that expression of like uh, culture, it's strategy for breakfast. Uh, I mean, culture is defining the way everyone in the company is going to behave. And so 
if you have the right culture, like whatever can happen to the company, to you, like kind of like bugs, issues, downtimes, whatever, you know that the team is going to react in the right way because they are in the culture. They know what to do at any time. You have empowered them to do the best. And so that's why I think culture is such a critical component of any company. Yeah. And in any case, maybe before to dive in more about uh, our story, you're going to have a culture. I don't think it's possible for a company not to have a culture. I think the big difference here is, is that the culture you want or not? Uh, and if you want to make sure that you're going to have the culture you want, you should be intentional about it. You should design the culture instead of letting things happen. And by that you mean uh, you should really work out with your co-founders uh, at some stage, not too late on in the process, what that culture should be and what you agree should be the, the company culture, and then somehow uh, acquire agency, acquire some sort of agency over the evolution of that. How, do, how did you go about doing that in the early-ish yeah. days? Oh, yeah. So, so yes, that's exactly what I mean. And, uh, and the culture is never done. It's never finished. The work, I mean, the company is going to scale, hopefully. And as the company scales, I mean, you cannot work the same way at two people and at 300 people. And so obviously the culture has to change. And that's someone sometimes a little difficult. And like, maybe I can tell you our story there, uh, but you have up and down, like the culture is never done. So uh, culture was a, probably to us something very important compared to most founders because we were already, uh, you know, like uh, not all that old, but like kind of like <laughs> we had some experience in the in the industry already. Sure. Uh, we had no idea about what culture meant at that time. It was in 20, like 2012 when we founded the company. And, uh, and at that time, we were not really in the ecosystem. We didn't have that kind of vocabulary. And, but we knew that we wanted to, to discuss the type of company we were going to create. And that was actually the day before I resigned, like basically the day before we committed to create the company, we spent uh, like half a day with my co-founder speaking only about that. What type of company do we want to create? Just to make sure we're aligned. That's the only, that was the only objectives. Um, and, uh, and it worked well. I mean, we ended up designing, like speaking of uh, at that time, creating a culture, uh, a company based on ownership. So culture of owners. Uh, which meant for us, like people taking initiatives, meant for us people that were empowered to do as they see fit because it was their company, like they were not just employees. Okay. Uh, and yeah, that was one year before hiring our first employee. So it was pretty early. It was not formalized, just an idea or concept. And one year later, we hired our first employee who is still with us today, our VP Engineering. Um, maybe uh, if that's useful, uh, I was speaking of up and down. So maybe I can go quickly through some of the up and downs before to dive into specific questions. Uh, so I already explained what we started with. Uh, well, it started to break about, at about 10 people. Uh, at that time, uh, we had people who were relatively experienced because we were too small to be able to uh, really take very junior people yet, like wanted people who could uh, basically we knew their trade already. And what happened is that they were reverting to their habits. Whatever we would say in interviews, they were just working and like reverting to their habits, which, which is normal. But their habit was not what we wanted. 
And so we uh, uh, we did the first thing, like a first pass of formalizing the culture, which was very simple, uh, a wiki page. Okay, what do we mean by ownership? That was it. Uh, and that worked. That was enough. Uh, it was basically making that explicit, making ourselves accountable on what we meant. Uh, so it worked until until it didn't anymore. Like maybe 40 people, I would say, around that number. Uh, at that time in the lab of the company, you know, we were scaling pretty fast and we needed to hire a few managers or promote from the company like a few managers. Yes. And uh, and and we had people like telling us, hey, no, we cannot do that at Agolia. Uh, why? Because it's not in our culture. Uh, why? <laughs> because our culture is to be flat. Uh, no, <laughs> we cannot like grow to a 1,000 people company by staying flat. It's not possible. Our culture is to be yeah. owners. It's not the same thing. Uh, and so there was a lot of, there were a lot of misunderstanding about what was the culture. Um, and people were speaking every day about the culture, but mis, like, misusing it. And so we decided at that time, it was 20, early 2016, when we did, uh, we spent a few months to work on the culture and formalize uh, our core values. Um, basically, the who we are, yes, uh, yes. you know, uh, and we came up with five core values that were redefining uh, who we were. Uh, I could spend a lot of time. I'm not sure that's the most useful here, uh, but then uh, I think I would say the next, the following two years were kind of the golden age of the culture, uh, if I can call that this way, because the way the values I think were well crafted, well explained, and we started to use them everywhere uh, from. Mm -hmm recruiting which was very important so we had a we basically equipped all of our interviewers with a list of possible questions they could pick from to test for each value and uh, in the list of interviews of the day like you would have at least one interview per value and then technical interview or whatever else uh, that is needed but we would at least assess each value uh, explicitly during one interview and to help interviewers we, uh, we had crafted some questions but that's also some very simple uh, things like we uh, we had emojis in Slack. So every time someone was displaying a, a value, like a good value behavior, where, like people would react with emojis, like kind of like, hey, like care, like candor, like whatever, uh, depending on the situation. And uh, all of these that work really well. And we grew organically with that. It was working really well until it wasn't again. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's one of these mistakes. Uh, we kind of became complacent um, uh, because it was working so well. We were not really thinking about the culture anymore. I mean, we were thinking about the, about the culture every single day, but it was not intentional. I mean, we, we were not crafting the culture anymore. It was there, it was working. Uh, except that what we had done was to really formalize the who we were with these values not the how we work okay and at 50 people that was not necessary everyone was knowing each other like it was just working organically like awesome but when we started to reach like 150 people that's when it started to break because by then people didn't know each other anymore like at least not everyone uh like it was not that simple to to like to decide how to work and we had kind of uh, completely, uh, like, I don't know, missed the fact that we also had to formalize the how we work, not only the who we are, but also the how we work. Uh, 
because the culture is everything. It's not just the who. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that led us to a, a new set of changes. Um, and I think it's never finished, but that were more about how we make decisions, like like what, how do we set targets, like OKRs, like creating a lot of visibility uh, around these topics. But we had to, uh, we had a lot of friction around 2018, I think, uh, due to that myth around how we work. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the things that changed from the first time I met you to kind of later was I remember when you were smaller, you talked about how how you loved seeing um, engineers and salespeople jumping on the call. You sell to developers, mm -hmm. uh, develop to seed and grow play with developers, of course. And you loved the trust and the interplay there. Um, and then you talked about, yeah, that was great until you got to a certain size things got more formalized, teams became huge, and it didn't happen naturally, and that you'd need to kind of think about ways to create yeah. an environment in which you could you could get that cross-fertilization. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, yeah. about, about how it changes with scale, that sort of teamwork uh, I think, dynamic. I think one of the things we were very successful early on, I think to still today when I speak with uh, like some of our very uh, recent hires, like senior hires, like we, we just hired a new CRO, for example, uh, they are very impressed by how much the team cares. And care is one of our core values. And I think it really yeah. shows in how people behave. And they really care about their impact, about like make, building the right company and, and so on. In the early days, that could uh, that would translate by like engineers caring about salespeople and the opposite. And that's pretty rare. I mean, that's something I've never seen elsewhere before. And when I was seeing like engineers like eager to help sales, that get on calls with them to convince customers, I mean, that's kind of like what that was the highlight of my day. When I, that. I mean, the the the, the most uh, the biggest highlight I had like on this uh, on this topic was when uh, you know our engineering team were doing uh, kind of a one day of site every quarter just to work on the organization like objectives and so on, and they had some workshops that were at the initiatives of the team, not not the managers or the VP or whatever, and one of these uh, the topics that were that was suggested there was hey, how can we better help the sales team at the end of the quarter? Like that, that coming from engineers, like pretty impressive. That's great. Yeah, yeah. But I, I realized that one of the things that made that that helped with that. I mean, the culture was the main element. But then around the culture, uh, we had a good setup. Uh, like the 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 office, especially in Paris, was just one floor. Like everyone was basically with everyone. Like it was very close. I mean, sometimes you know, like open space is not the best thing to concentrate or focus. But in that case, it was really great uh, because it enabled people to see each other, to work with each other, and like they would mix and so on. But as you scale and you, we moved to another office with like several floors, uh, and then uh, and then people started yeah. together like by function and like it basically became more complex. Like you you could spend the day your whole day without seeing anyone like if you're a salesperson you you could spend the whole day without seeing anyone from engineering i think that's something we missed um if i were to go back i would probably be more proactive at figuring out maybe a, a floor plan or, or insist on having a, a single floor bigger floor whatever like whatever could work better to make sure that these people would interact way more and yet today, uh, all that is kind of moot with the pandemic. Everyone is remote for us, and uh, and yeah, I think uh, I think it cannot work the same way anymore. No. Not that remote is a bad thing. Like uh, 
Yeah. I think that if I were to create a new company today, I would probably create it for remote anyway. But I would try to be intentional about the how we work, about some habits, some processes, whatever, uh, to make that happen, like to make that interaction happen. Like not only the culture to sustain that, to make sure that it's the, the will, um, but also kind of like the setup, the how we work uh, to make sure that the opportunities are there for people to interact more cross-functionally. And I think it's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, um, one of the implications of that is in pre-COVID days, you know, you saw a tremendous value in co-location, yeah. uh, a, tre a tremendous value. And it's, it's, I think it's a lesson for a lot of people. There's a lot of people who associate 100% distributed companies with great culture, partly because they have to have very good culture to, for it to work. Mm -hmm. But of course, there were great cultures inside many co-located companies too. And I think it's a lesson to people not to be religious about one one thing or the other. But I guess the, the new reality makes it, of course, uh, distributed, makes gives distributed a very powerful case. I think uh, the key thing with remote, for remote companies is that they have to think about it way earlier than co-located companies. Like look at GitLab, like their, their handbook, like, uh, it's incredible what they've built, but they had to build it to make sure they were creating the right culture. Uh, like when you are remote, you, you need more of these processes. It's a little more constraining possibly, um, but you need to be way more intentional about that than when you are like co-located because heck, when you are in the same office, it's kind of like everything is organic. You don't need to write it down. Uh, when you are remote, you don't have a choice. You have to write it down. Yes. Um, and one thing that, that's always interested me, uh, Nicola, is uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is the, is the balance between, because culture, if, if, if a company develops a very positive culture, which is attracting new employees, it's good, good mm -hmm. relationship with customers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's hard earned and it, it becomes a marketing tool as well, but it, deservedly so. Do companies need to be careful about where they draw the line? If I remember my experience in Salesforce, one great use of that was trust.salesforce.com where they made all their servers visible. They had a problem, they had downtime. They solved it by making themselves visible to everybody, so they had to keep it up all the time. They used, so they, they, they built more trust with customers by forcing themselves. But then on the other side, they have this thing called Ohana or family, um, you know, which depends on your point of view, but it's kind of, it's kind of uh, saying that the company is, is as important as the family, which is what, you know, a lot of companies are doing that. A lot of large, not just Salesforce, loads of large companies do that. What's your feeling on, you know, where the, where the line, where you draw the line between developing authentic culture and then taking that culture and using it for branding or for community or for ecosystem build. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's a, it's a lot of, uh, lot of topics here. Guys are in the same question. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Let me, let me try to, uh, to unravel, I can, I can to go after all these elements. I think the first element, uh, the word family, uh, I always avoided, I've always avoided using that word. I don't consider the company to be a family. Um, and I think it's probably, I completely understand how and why people would do that. And because there is, there is this sense of belonging and that's very important. But yes. but if I take a step back and I think in our case, we were helped by the fact that both my co-founder and I had a family before creating the company. We had wife, kids. And so for us, it was very clear that it was not the same thing. We had a family and in, we even discussed about that like in the early days. Uh, if we have to stack rank family and company, family is first. I mean, obviously, sure. even if in the way you act day after day, sometimes, you know, <laughs> that's not that simple. <laughs> but anyway, like on principle, like in principle, like family is first. 
And so yeah. for us, it was never a question of like calling the company a family. That being said, like it doesn't mean that uh, it's not a tight group of like-minded people that have a big sense of belonging. It doesn't mean that you cannot have that same feeling of like a group tight, uh, like together, like uh, like going, like I don't know, able to like a uh, football team. Yeah, like a football team. Like 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 you know, you can you have a challenge. Eh? As a team, you can uh, go after any challenge. And and that that's really working. So I would be careful about using that word family, but I yeah, I know. I mean everyone is different. But I would probably guess that most people calling their company a family don't have kids. Yeah. Or at least they don't have kids before creating the company. Um that is I agree. Different. it's different. Now uh, in terms of marketing or how you speak about the company, we would never really uh leverage the culture as a marketing tool, at least not intentionally. Uh, in a way, that's what I'm doing right now, uh, speaking of the culture of the company, but it was never kind of like a purpose. Uh, that yes. being said, the culture helps in terms of the perception from the market. Uh, in our culture, like yeah, I told you about care, but like another of our core value is trust. Um, yes. And these elements help a lot. With, by the way, like, another learning, quick learning here. Values, the, the word you use don't matter at all okay uh, most companies have the same words or like similar words like if you yeah. can try to analyze the like it's 80 percent similar like maybe they're like 20 percent a little different like and we do have like a, some differences uh but trust care that kind of like things everyone is going to say they care about customers and like everyone can say that it's how you act on it that matters it's not the words uh but let's go back to care and trust well of course we cared about customers and we trusted each other but Trust yep. can also apply to customers. If you have a, an issue, a downtime, a bug, whatever, uh, don't hide. Trust your customers. Be transparent. For us, it was also about our interaction with our community. And the truth is that when you do that and you show your care genuinely, it creates lifelong customers. It's an opportunity. You have a downtime. Well, of course, that's not something you would do on purpose, but it's an opportunity to show the customers how much you care for them, to help them, like to really own the mistake or whatever happened. And by the way you are going to react, they are going to be possibly blown away. And people know that cheat happens. I mean, all their services are done one day or another. Uh, and even if they trust you, at some point they know that it's possible to have a downtime or some bug or whatever. But if it's how you react to these that matters. And, and I, 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 that yeah. go through that may actually become a better customer later on than if they had never gone through a, an issue like that. That's great. I, I love that. And by the way, there's a, there's a fun comment from Annabelle Devetter. Uh, she had the comment. She said that uh, she uh, she was uh, she she agrees with you completely about not saying family. Yeah. And she said jokingly in an interview, "Thanks uh, to the to the uh, to the interviewer in the company, but I have a dysfunctional family at home." I don't need one at work. <laughs> so uh, uh, Alex was asking, did she get the job? I wonder, did she get the job? Um, now that's that's a culture. The impact of you know culture, one aspect of culture on on um, customers. If we think about employees, of course, which is super important too. Um, I, I read a blog piece recently by Tom Tungus, who's, who writes very good pieces. But he was he was looking at um, Ray Dalio's principles, and he, you know he 
tremendous uh, piece of work. And uh, he was looking at the culture of Netflix, and he, he drew a conclusion that I'd slightly disagree with, which is um, that he felt that they were engendering a powerful sense of belonging or rejection in the company. I believe in, in engendering a powerful sense of belonging, um, but you should be able to uh, find out or uh, much earlier before there's a sense of rejection, uh, you know, if something's not working. Uh, what's your what's your feeling on that? So, so I, I've not read the post, so I may uh, like... I quote, I quote it directly though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to uh, just a grain of thought, but I probably would agree with him. Uh, I think the more uh, explicit you can be about the culture, the better. Uh, and I think the, the basically let's say that differently. Uh, if someone feels the company is not for them, well, that's the rejection part. You want that to happen the earlier, the possible, the, the, the earlier. Sure. The best. So if they realize that before applying, it's better. Like nobody wastes okay. time. If they realize that during interviews, it's better than joining the company and then realizing that later on. But even if they realize that their first week, it's better than like a year later. I don't know how to. Uh, so the earlier the better. And it's kind of like a way to uh, to filter for false positives. Uh, you want the people to apply to the company uh, to be the right fit for, who, like to enjoy the company, like to, to enjoy their job. And culture can be very opinionated. So it's better to display these opinions very publicly so that you avoid mishires. Uh, there is nothing worse than uh, a mishire like bad yeah. of it. I mean, uh, and again, uh, again, not again, but I want to be very careful about like what we mean by culture fit here because culture fit is also a loaded word. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know for you, but I guess that everyone now, uh, most people now accept that diversity is extremely important, for example. And when I say diversity, it's not only gender or race, it can be also opinions like way to work, it can be many things. And so when we speak about culture fit, it's kind of like going against diversity. Uh, and that's not at all what I mean. Uh, culture, for me, it's more about like core values, like core things that can be completely irrelevant of like diversity. I mean, yeah, maybe you don't want, yeah, maybe there is like, uh, like for example, someone who doesn't want to work with, I don't know, to be candid, like which is one of our core value, wouldn't work here. And maybe that's kind of diverse, missing diversity here, but I don't think so. I think that's kind of like what defines us. Um, and so uh, being opinionated here, explicitly claiming, okay, what do we mean by our culture? What do we do? Like what type of decision we could make in, in, one, in one situation or another is great to do publicly so that people who don't recognize themselves are not going to apply. Okay. And, and I suppose by going too extreme on it, uh, it's the core core value as opposed to some of the maybe the, the how it manifests itself. If if uh, I suppose different people have different ways of doing the best thing for a company, and they can appear quite different, but if the core value underneath all of that, if they're if they're actually rowing in the same direction, which is close to one of the values of Satok, actually, um, it can work, and and it. It allows a company to grow by having, I suppose, different types of people. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fine line. It's a fine line that's very important sure. uh, to get right because you don't you want to encourage diversity uh, and uh, obviously uh, like gender race and, and everything like uh, a sexual orientation, like whatever you name it, but also the way to work, like the way to think. Like you want to have people that are analytical, but also like a good mix of left and right brain, like a good mix of I don't know 
like different styles. I don't know how to explain that. And that's very yeah. difficult to do when you are uh, misinterpreting uh, culture fit. Culture fit is not having people like you. It's just people who share the same core values. So yeah, exactly. It's like, if, I suppose if you think of a political movement or, or, or something like that, you could have all sorts of personalities within that. Um, uh, but they have some sort of, well, if, yeah, if it's yeah. maybe depends. It, 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 politics is politics, but but yeah, uh, I, I understand you. Now we're getting to the point where we're going to ask the audience to send some messages in. The beauty of this is I can keep asking uh, Nic uh, Nicola questions, but I would absolutely love if people would um, uh, start bringing questions in. And uh, I'm just making my screen slightly smaller there in case I can. Uh, because I'm missing anything. Uh, so um, uh, just on that, you were talking about, you know, having agency over, you know, your culture from a very early stage. Uh, so let's take this back to some early founder stage, because a lot of the guys here are, um, actually, I see a question. I was going to ask you something. I'm going to give, I prefer to ask a question from somebody else. Hey, uh, Elton Kwa, I believe. Um, oh, I see Michael Rager coming in. Michael, um, oh, he's gone again. We had somebody popping in here. Uh, okay, is he is he is he going to get in? Yeah, that was a book. I guess it depends on how I react to that one, Michael. This is my chance to get very friendly with you. <laughs> but let me ask a question from Elton Kwa, and we'll get to you. We'll get to you, Michael. <laughs> uh, this is my chance to, to really develop a great relationship. Um, let's have a look. He's curious about how you'd view in strategic speed misalignment, uh, like building a key product in SaaS industry and scaling process flow, where the speed of product development takes priority in SaaS case. I, I feel the need to read that again, actually. Um, yeah, I'm sure to get the question completely. I'm curious about how it would view yeah, in strategic Do you want to join? Uh... Elton on video. Do you want to join Elton and, and maybe you could, uh, that would be fantastic. We'd love to see you on screen. Yes. Uh, hi, sir. Steven, uh, Nicholas. How are you, Elton? Ah, oh, good. I'm uh, having a good beer on the night. <laughs> There's Thanksgiving night. Good. So yeah, I mean, it's day. So I just uh, want to recap on Nicholas, uh, some of the case study that I've gone through with the clients here uh, on the SES. So they're saying that most of the time when we develop a um, product on the SaaS systems, like, you know, I need to develop a lot of features and keep up with the speed of enrollment. And then in the process that I need to build up a lot of customer or key hire acquisitions and then like getting alignment at that speed, especially being pressured by investors is quite tough. So I wanted to think like, how do you strategically plan all this? Because your scenario just now was scaling on Abligo was quite interesting. Like in the times of pandemic, we can't really align each other so easily as what it is pre-COVID. Yeah, I think uh, alignment is kind of like, a, yeah. uh, so it's kind of like how you balance basically where you invest your time. And uh, I don't think alignment, you can spend enough time on it. And I think I did that mistake uh, of, okay. uh, you know, in the early days, actually the culture probably was slowing me down. It took me some time, like until that second kind of recognition, like at 150 people where we realized that we need to be more explicit about how we work, um, and and that's when we that that's when we really work uh, explicitly about stating the mission, exactly where we are going, how, where, like you know, all of these elements, 
and eventually translating that in OKRs and basically building clarity. Uh, in the early days, that clarity was kind of increasing, kind of like we were seeing each other in the office, we were chatting over coffee, yeah. so we didn't have the same need. Uh, but that clarity is kind of necessary because the thing is that uh, if you have like, how do you, what's the expression? You know, you have like many people rowing on a, on, in a boat and if they don't row in the same direction, you are going nowhere. Uh, and that's basically what's happened here if you don't have alignment. Uh, and so alignment, I would prioritize that depending on the size of the team. Uh, if you can increase the clarity by say 10%, by spending more time on that, that 10% okay. has incredible leverage because maybe your 10 people team is going to do a better job. And it's 10 people, it's not just you. It's like 10 people who are going to go in the right direction, make better decisions because they know, they know where you want to go, where the company should go without needing you to be just next to them constantly. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, so, of course. Yeah. Uh, is there like a matrix that you do measure on like weekly basis or quarterly? Because like quarterly reviews comes in and then you say that, oh, this is employee, we need to develop the product, but end up you are like having a big relationship with the sales and technical team most of the time. So that's- very Yeah, my, my, my thing is that at high level, you decide of the direction, you are very clear with the team about the direction you are going and you let them do the rest. You empower them to figure out the details. So you don't right. really need to, to do, like to decide of all the details by yourself. What you need is to set the direction and then the team is going to figure out the details by themselves. Ah, that's cool. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks. Right. Fantastic. Um, I'm just uh, having a look for Michael Razor. I can bring him in here if I can find him. Uh, oh, oh, there you brought, you brought somebody else in. That's great. How are you doing, Damien? Very good, thank you. Bonjour, Nicolas. Bonjour, <laughs> good time to see. <laughs> um, yeah, my question was that uh, um, in the current circumstances and building remote team, if you were to be put in that specific space nowadays, how quickly would you accelerate actually your uh, cultural fit, your cultural awareness? Because from my, our perspective, we work with teams in different places already, and we're quite small. But I, um, I just I would love to have your views on this if you were to do this today. Yeah. Uh, so for, for, there is a big difference between me today and me eight years ago. Uh, <laughs> so if it's me today, I would do that day one. <laughs> me eight years ago, I wouldn't know better. So mm. uh, no, I think that now that people are way more remote, and I would definitely well, consider remote first, like remote only company for remote company today, uh, mm. because there are so many advantages. But that means that you need to be explicit day one. I mean, basically, that should be part of... I mean, it's going to take a lot of time to design that culture, what you want. It's not a one-shot thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so better start working on it, like, you know, maybe a weekly or one hour set aside to think about these things, like discuss with the team. Maybe during your OLANs or your, like, whatever gathering you have, remote, like, on Zoom or whatever, maybe you can uh, make sure you have, like, half an hour or 15 minutes dedicated to how we work and like, is there any suggestions how we could improve the setup? Like, I don't know, try to empower the people. I would think about that way earlier. Mm -hmm. One of the things I would advise, recommend to, sorry, I just think about that as you are asking the question. Uh, there is a resource, a book that I would have loved to read back then uh, called A Culture Map by, I think it's Erin Mayer, uh, something like that. Yeah. I would definitely recommend that book. Uh, it's not a business, I mean, it's not a startup book. 
it's not really a culture book, but it's really something that can help you uh, really better understand the culture of different countries, different like even inside the United States, like different states, like kind of better understand how different people can be and how they are going to interpret your behavior, sometimes with like opposite ways. So yeah, I would definitely recommend that one. Uh, it's uh, it's probably a, a book today I would uh, force all my leadership to read. Yeah, like, like we all have like so diverse, so, so, so much diverse teams today that we had like 10 years ago. Uh, it has become even more important. And of course, when you are remote, you can have like um, team members from everywhere in the world. So it's even more important. Okay. Thank you. 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 Um, I was wondering, uh, Nicola, if you could share some practical examples about how you make sure that people feel that there is trust in the company. Um, if you think that, you know, people are like diverse teams and also like people have uh, somebody might read or hear like, oh, you know, you, in this company, if you make a mistake, we're okay with that. Um, but there's a difference between reading that and actually feeling that it's mm -hmm. okay. So do you have, did you, over the, over the course of the, of the years, do practical things yeah. um, to make people really believe it and feel it? I think it's all comes from um, uh, like actually uh, witnessing um such things and the thing is that of course new employees are not going to have that context and so i, I found a lot of power in anecdotes mm -hmm. um so let me tell so as we were scaling the company in the early days a new team member would have a lunch with each co-founder separately one-on-one -on -one. uh and during that lunch it was kind of like super open we discussed culture of course but like any kind of topic and as we scaled, obviously it couldn't work anymore. Uh, and so we ended up like having a, a group lunch, like with only one of the founders and like, and so on. But it was not that great because we were not, it was not, it was kind of a little random. And so I don't remember how long ago, maybe two or three years ago, we started to, to do something which was our culture 101 session in the onboarding. It was a one hour session with either of the founders, like either my co-founder or myself. And still there, except I don't do them anymore, but they are still doing it. And uh, once a month, all the new employees of the month, like either in the US with me or in Europe with my co-founder, uh, we would go through the history of the culture, uh, like each value, like what we mean exactly by each value, and we would tell like plenty of anecdotes. We basically illustrate each value with examples of what happened in the life of the company. And usually by the end of that session, people would like, wow, like would belong, like way more, they would understand, they would trust us. We would show that we are approachable, like it we were not just the CEO, CTO, it, we were like just team members. And by um, sharing with authenticity, with reliability during this session, it really, like it, it's, it's, it was a great way to scale basically. One hour a month was not enough. It's never enough, but was kind of like a very well used one hour. And that's okay. so much okay. more, I don't know, so much better than. 
Yeah, I think it's, yeah, uh, we, I hear myself twice. Um, I think it's great that you actually took the time. Like, if, uh, I'm sure that that hour was well spent. And that's- Yeah, um, and, uh, and sure, uh, you know, the, anecdote, the power of anecdotes, I mean, it's kind of yeah, like uh, yeah. crazy. It's, it's I'm, really, I'm uh, a, a marketer. The, the, story, the, the power of the story is no uh, no stranger to me. It's it's indeed people remember if you if you tell if you tell uh, an anecdote. So okay, that was that was great. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you so much, Annabelle. Thank you. Bye bye. Great great questions. Bye. I uh, just want to say thank you to Alton who uh, sent us a link to Culture Map. It's not the first time Culture Map has been recommended. Uh, and also positivity. How you doing, Alex? Fiuma. I'm good. Good to see hey, Alex. you, Alex. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, uh, very good. Uh, sharing your time with us and uh, our community again. I think one of the uh, like yeah, I'm trying to think how many SASDOC events you've spoken at now, but um, it, 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 it's been quite a few. But really, uh, each time uh, again, I, I kind of said it at the beginning that I learned something you, you know new every time. And again, with this focus on company culture, uh, getting some great insights. So I've got, I've got three questions for you, for you, Nicholas, and you can answer them uh, as quickly or you know uh, as you want, and in, in any order. Okay. okay. Yes. No. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one of, first question is um, burnout this year. Like you, you know, uh, everybody's kind of feeling it. Everybody's kind of talking about it. I didn't really hear too much as a CEO about burnout in 2019. And sorry, my dog is it's the witching hour for my dog, so you might hear her in as well. Um, but um, uh, but this year it, it's very commonplace. And and, and as you, you've stepped away from the day-to-day -day role with Algolia this year, but you're obviously still aware of you, you know uh, what's happening within the business, how is Algolia managing burnout or you know how are they feeling or what are you seeing with the companies and the startups that, that you're working? So that, that's one, one question. Uh, second question is, and forgive me if Stephen uh, uh, asked this already, uh, why did you replace yourself as CEO when you did? Uh, and then third, third question is, in 2016, I think it was 2016, in Dublin, SaaS Society, we were having a little conversation, glass of wine over lunch, which was nice, very continental. Uh, and you said to me, uh, oh, you know, SaaS stock should merge with SASTA uh, at the time. Uh, do, you, do you still think we should do that? Uh, so that <laughs> Okay, that's very funny. <laughs> okay. Um, so burnout first. Um, I think I mean there is no. I mean obviously the the, the shift toward remote was good and bad. And I think what we've seen is the actually most of the tension was not because of the remote, as much as much as the you know the the shelter in place kind of like uh, that you had everywhere in the world. And uh, like I remember like some of my previous team members like. Kind of like, let's say they have like a, a partner and a two kids and are in a small apartment and they kind of move. I mean, that was way worse than whatever could happen on the job. So it's more about supporting. It was more for us about supporting them. Kind of like, yeah, well, we led, we basically adapted their work hours. Like we kind of tried to be as adaptable as possible. And the truth is that it was compensated. Like some of these extreme were compensating by other, the other side. We had some people who were way more productive. By being remote, it's kind of like balanced out each other. But as a team, we kind of try to to be together there and kind of help each other. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would say that 
kind of worked. And I, I think at the end of the day, it's more about making sure you listen and you show that you show that you listen. I mean, it's more. I remember when uh, we had the the Black Lives Matter kind of like craziness, like the, the death of George Floyd. I mean, we uh, we had like some listening groups, like for all the people who felt strongly about what was happening in the world. Uh, we had some external uh, people coming uh, just to help us, like tell the story, like answer some questions. It's it's showing that you care, basically. At the end of the day, it's just that. Yeah. Caring and showing, like not showing, like caring. And because you care, you kind of help the team uh, where they are the best you can. Um, but yeah, uh, I think the, the, the abrupt shift to remote, remote is not for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a small apartment, you have like a family and you cannot move. I mean, no, you want to go to the office and the office is an escape and that's completely fair. So remote is not for everyone. And then of course the the pandemic and everything that happened with it is kind of made everything worse, uh, which explained it. CEO, so like I'm going to do a, a quick version. I could speak for a long time about that one. Uh, no, everything happened, I mean, started early in September. So we raised our Series C I mean, we announced it in October, but basically the, the, we closed early September. And once the cash was in bank, uh, kind of like didn't want to revert. I, I take, a, I took a, I made a pause. Like it was a pause. Uh, I don't, I wanted to avoid going back to the day-to-day -day operational work. I mean, I had changed completely my, my calendar because of the fundraising. I was full-time fundraising, um, and so I used that time to do some introspection. And for about a month, the month of September, a lot of discussions with my co-founders and with the board, kind of like, okay, what's best for the company? Uh, we're just out of a fundraising. And so obviously the, the potential was clear. Uh, we had, I've spoken about that so much, but how to best reach that potential? And I realized that someone with more experience at that stage and also more experience in the good market functions, because my background is technical, uh, and someone like that could do a better job. And that ended up by launching a search, a CEO search in October. Um, fast forward, maybe a quick anecdote on this one. When I launched the search, I was not thinking about leaving my, like, I thought I would stay operational. I was, like I asked myself the question like very quickly, hey, can I still bring a lot to the company? Obviously, yes. I had done my you know, that introspection where, okay, what do I like? What do I don't like? Uh, where am I good? Where I'm not good? And there, there was a misalignment with my day-to-day, -day, and that's why I wanted to hire someone new for that. But then I saw also all that expertise I had, like especially on the developer side, that was not leveraged, and I, I thought that was a mistake. And so, of course, I would work more on that. Fast forward towards the end of the search, I had like two types of finalists candidates. One was, uh, hey, I would never join if you don't stay. I need you. And one was like, oh, tell me again what you're going to do. Uh, and 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 the truth is that, you know, most failures when you have a, a change of CEO comes from conflict, or not really conflict between, between the CEOs, as much as uh, the team, uh, you know, they have a new CEO who makes a decision. They don't like the decision. They go to see the founder and previous CEO and kind of like try to get around. And that creates a lot of conflict and like the chance, the transition is difficult and so on. And and then uh, and then I spent a little more time thinking about that. Okay, what would be the role? 
how would that happen? It kind of that when I kind of opened the door to to leaving my uh, like an operational role, and then I uh, mentioned that to my wife, and then the decision was made. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in a in a way, like eight years of a startup, of course, uh, uh, it's uh, takes a toll on the family, and kind of like that was such a great opportunity for spending more time with family. We have three kids, and and so yeah, kind of like it was a, a good. Uh, circumstances good circumstances and i think that if i had a if i had thought about that in september uh that i would leave i would probably have i even if it was unconscious i would probably have lowered the bar against my will but you know hey you know you are going to leave you lower the bar i think like unconsciously uh so it was for the best in the end because i kept the bar super high Super high. I wanted to make sure I was making the best hire, and it's the most important hire I would ever make in my life, like for the Algolia. So uh, I think the bar needs to be the highest possible, as high as possible. And so yeah, that's basically the quick story about how that happened. And last question: Society, Sastre, and uh, and Sastok. No, I'm not going to to enter into that polemic. <laughs> I love both of you. I love both of you. I love, I love Sastre. I love Jason. You know that Jason is also one of my investors. And I love you too, Alex. So no, I'm a, there is a there is place for both Sastok and Sester. Exactly. You know, I like <laughs> good stuff. Thank thank you again, Nicholas. So I'll uh, I'll leave you back with Stephen. Thank you. Thanks, Emilian, Alex, Cuba, CEO of Sastok. I'm sure you all know you all know that. Actually, it's a compliment that you wanted them to to merge because you were invested in the other guys. So you obviously thought we could enhance them if uh if we if we merge so we'll sastak will take that as a great compliment uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> um i have a question for you um it's very interesting to think about the fact that we would build mostly distributed teams today and that gitlab manual i don't know if it's a thousand pages or the ones you might get in automatic or the ones you might get in in basecamp you couldn't really take those and, and rewire them I'm wondering, is there a place for cultural templates as a service where we kind of know some of the problems that are some of the questions you need to be asking yourself in the early days, in the mid stage or whatever? Do you think that's going to be, it might be out there already, but do you think this, if, if it is, I don't think there's a really great one out there. Do you think that's going to be a thing um, that that could be a real business? And, and, you know, is that a really important thing to have a template in place rather than starting from a blank page? No. Um... Let, let me uh, make a difference between, um, say, the who we are and the how we work. I don't think you can have okay. a conversation about the who. You are who you are. And like these core values should come from you and you only. Uh, of course, you can get sure. inspiration from others. and like. But you are. what's going to happen is that you are going to relate to some culture and not to others. And yes, you can get inspiration. The, the template thing could be helpful, however, in terms of how you work, especially how you work remotely, like you, you should learn from the best practices. Don't reinvent everything. I mean, most of the challenges are the same for every companies. And so it's silly to reinvent your own recipe for everything. You should just look at what has worked elsewhere. And I think GitLab example is a good one here because they have done such a great job. Uh, but also it's like, I don't know how big is their manual, but it's too big. For an stage company, I mean, you, know, you need like a week to read it. I don't know. It's the pick and it's choose. Open. It's open source. It's no, huge. You can choose. And and the other thing is that as much as I love GitLab and the way they work, uh, they didn't start this way. 
What I mean is that if you are an early stage company, don't try to apply everything that GitLab is doing. Inspire yourself and just pick and choose what makes sense for you today. Uh, because many of the things they are doing today only, only make sense at, uh, like at scale. So be careful to over-engineer your, your kind of like your culture in a way. Um, yeah. And then the last, last way to answer the question, I don't think it's a business. Uh, okay. I, think, I don't think it's a business <laughs> in the way I qualify a startup business. Uh, I don't think you are going to create a billion dollar company by building culture templates. Um, you could do a consultancy and like live well out of it. And that's awesome. And that's a, a good business, but that's not, uh, that's not a startup. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. No wonder you're in, you're in Y Combinator. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, I may be by an experience at YC. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it, you know, we, 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 the t that template, that, it's great to see that model that GitLab had developed, um, but also there's great blogs and books, the books from the Basecamp boys, uh, uh, Jason and DHH, they're, they're, they're phenomenal as well. Um, you know, so just for some of the early starter-uppers there, there's no questions coming at the moment, um, you know, uh, what, because we're kind of wrapping up soon, what, um, and I hope you... I don't know. Will you be able to stay, by the way, to network with the guys for a little while after this? Yeah, or can, how are you doing for time? Yeah, I can stay like 15 minutes more. Uh, okay, that's amazing. I, I, I didn't mean, I actually meant to ask you that before we, we got online. I wasn't trying to put you under pressure. Thank you. You're far too generous, actually. Thank you. So people want to stay in line here. And if they want to network a little bit with, with Nicolai, you'll be here for, for 15 minutes. Um, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Uh, you, you know, in terms of kind of some of the earlier stage uh, starter uppers, entrepreneurs, um, and, and, and leaders uh, in companies, um, you know, how can you know? Do you think the that culture suddenly has become four x, five x more important to get a handle on early in this new normal than it was before? Is it actually an absolute key? to scaling well, even more so now in the early stage than it was before? Uh, probably, with, with distributed teams. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, I think it's more, the need is more intense now than it was before, at least like because people are more distributed. Um, because when you are remote, you don't have that uh, office place, like that workplace where, where people interact with each other. Uh, and so again, culture is both the who and the how. Uh, yes. And uh, if you don't have this discussion, if you don't codify the, how, I mean, you basically need to codify the how way earlier than before. How you work is critical. Uh, it doesn't matter when you are like ten people in a in an office space because that's going to be organic. You don't need to codify it. But if these same ten people are each behind a computer, like completely remote and yes you have video like just imagine time zone time zone is the worst uh, yes if you have like uh, nine hours or like more time zone difference between team members that means they don't have face time so you need to codify you need to to codify how you are going to work how you are going to make sure you're in sync uh, and culture is even more important also to empower people if they are like at a distant time zone uh, and they need to wait upon each other to make any decision and you are going to slow down to a core, like it's not possible. So, so codifying all these elements are is critical to, to be successful 
uh, way more than like before when people were in the same space. And before before I ask you the next question, uh, maybe Joe or Gabe would put in the comments there. Is the intention to do was the intention to open it up for slight networking afterwards, or have I thrown a clanger in there? So just let me know uh, where you're going on that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Mars, the mission to Mars, the single biggest problem psychologically for people is the time it takes for a message to get back to Earth. It will take, and uh, and the other. That is what they think is going to be the single biggest psychological challenge um so you know when, when you have those different time zone issues and maybe you have a minority of staff that are in time zones that you're not in you know how important is it to uh regularly try to schedule a get together where maybe you stay up a little bit later or you get up a little bit earlier and bring them into a group session is, is do you think that's very important if that's the yeah. situation I mean, the more FaceTime you have, the better. I think one of the the things I've learned, uh, I mean, in the case of Algolia, we uh, we basically had that split between Paris and, and San Francisco. I mean, we have like other offices, but that the two main offices, and I, I'm in San Francisco. My co-founder is in Paris. Uh, the time zone difference has been our biggest challenge. Period. I mean, there is no bigger challenge for us in the building of the companies and the time zone. And the, the trick here is that it becomes worse as you scale. Uh, because when you start, you know, you have like a few people. First, the pe these people are like the early people. They are entrepreneur-minded. They, they don't mind waking up early, being late, and you have more face time. As you scale, it's not sustainable. Uh, you get to 50, 100, like 300 people, it's not sustainable. And worse, uh, as you scale, you need more communication. You have more people to synchronize with. Sure. That, yeah. like that overlap shrinks, and you have more to fit in it. So it gets worse. So it's really crazy. Um, let me give you another experience from uh, my new CEO. So I have a, a new CEO who, uh, Bernadette, she's based in Boston. Uh, mm -hmm. She was supposed to relocate to SF, of course. Like SF is our headquarters. And, and then because of the pandemic, she started remote from Boston. Well, today, I would probably recommend her to stay in Boston because of the time zone. Because uh, she has basically three hours more overlap with the European team. That three hours are incredibly, uh, and it's critical. She can do such a better job thanks to that. Uh, and that leads me to think today, I completely changed my mind about like where to uh, base your uh, US office. Like, except yeah. if you have a really, really, really good reason to go to SF as a European. Yeah, company, East uh, Coast. Go to East Coast. Yeah, uh, go East Coast. Like, you need to have a really good reason. And you can still have like employees in West Coast. But, uh, you know, as the founder, as the CEO, you need to be very, very transversal. You need to interact with so many members of the team that are going to be based everywhere that having a central location is like a kind of like a huge advantage. Uh, uh, and yeah, I would, uh, I would today, I think even for a company like Agolia, I think for us, I don't know what I would do, but at least on the professional side, yes, our ecosystem is in, is in SF, but um, especially at scale, uh, having the, the, the leaders uh, based in like a central location. Um, I mean, the advantage completely outweighs the, huge. the uh, yeah, it, it's huge. Thank you very much. Uh, and I see we, we finally, I was about to bring you in. That's why I was clicking around. 
Uh, but but somebody else got you in there, Michael. Michael Rager, how are you? Um, very well, thank you. And sorry for the disturbance earlier. I'm very Not glad that we make it. And uh, Nicolas, pleasure to talking to you again. Um, uh, and just just one thing that 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 I always find curious, uh, as you mentioned before, the, when the company crashes, um, and were there, or rather, how how often were there times where you realized, okay, I need to make some foundational implementation on a cultural perspective that is the best for the company, but it actually would go against. Um, oh. And how did you? How did you sort of address that on a on a personal level? Because I would assume as the company grows, you as a CEO, CEO grow um, as a mm -hmm. person. And um, so, just so, how did you um, address that challenge? I uh, okay, I don't know if you have a good answer on this one. Okay, let me give you an anecdote, like uh, one of those things that happened in the laptop company. Uh, maybe that will illustrate the kind of things that you have to go through. Uh, 2018, like, like about 150 people, actually, about when we had that kind of like need of codifying more how we work. Uh, one thing happened, uh, we changed from having an open uh, compensation policy uh, to not sharing it anymore. So what happened is that until like 150 people, we had a spreadsheet, a Google Doc, that was basically open to everyone in the company with the list of all team members and their compensation, including the stock options. So everyone, it was all transparent. Uh, it was a great, it was good and bad, of course, like is there a pros and cons, mm -hmm. but some great uh, positive impact here was the trust. It was kind of like a, a huge example of how, what we meant by trust. Mm -hmm. Like it was the transparency at its core. Uh, it had like advantages, like, I don't know, like, uh, I didn't even realize that at first, but later on when we were discussing about that, it was a great tool to make sure you didn't have um, a difference in compensation based on your, I don't know, uh, are you uh, based on your gender, based on whatever, everything was transparent. You couldn't mm -hmm. hide. It was great also, you know, you are a manager, you promote someone, not someone else it's visible, it's transparent, you cannot hide anything. So you, you have to be able to justify any choice you make. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of that was great. And of course, people would disagree with some of the decisions, but they would accept, they would respect them. They knew that they would default to trust. You know, they would uh, think yeah. that, yeah. I mean, even if they don't agree, they know that you have the best intention. They would, uh, yeah. because it's transparent. Uh, fast forward 20. I think it was in May 18 that we stopped that. We actually had a, a survey of the team and 90% of the company wanted to keep that policy, but we ended up like stopping. Uh, the main reason was uh, uh, privacy uh, laws. Basically, we were sharing private information uh, without consent. And even if we had asked for consent, that was when GDPR uh, got in, uh, in place. And even if we had consent, that kind of consent, you couldn't claim it was like, um, how do you say, like, you no, know, like given like a, mm -hmm. a free because there was like peer pressure, whatever you, whatever. So basically we stopped. Um, and that's when we realized we had been very complacent with our trust value. You know, hey, are you transparent? Of course, look, we even share compensation. So obviously we are transparent, like it's not a question. And then you stop sharing that. Oh. Again, what are we talking about? Like, what else do we share? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, 
uh, of course, I mean, we were transparent. We were sharing a lot of things. But what we didn't have was uh, was clarity in uh, how we made decisions, where we were going. Like, and that's basically when we started to implement this, like, kind of, like, building that clarity, implementing OKRs, uh, like, getting all that, working on all that piece of the culture, like the how we work, formalizing all of that, which was necessary. And that's this event kind of made us realize uh, how late we were on that. We had built some debt there that we had to pay back. Um, and to get back to your question, I, as a founder, like as how I look at the world, at my values, like I love that policy. I kind of like remove that policy against my, not my will, of course, at the end of the day, I was the one deciding, but mm -hmm. uh, I know my guts, I wanted to keep it. Uh, and it ended up deciding not to keep it. Uh, and that was a that was a tough decision. It led to a lot of yeah tension in the company. Like people, like some of the early employees were like really frustrated about us stopping that. They they believed we were kind of like becoming the the wrong company or whatever. Like you know, uh, and uh, and yeah, that hurts a lot when you make such a decision and you have people. Uh, I don't know, saying um, like feeling bad because of that and believing you you don't have their back anymore or whatever it hurts a lot because that's not your intention obviously thank you so much really appreciate it we finally we finally got a, your question it was a great one <laughs> thanks michael just just before we wrap up i just want to comment uh uh nicola uh, annabelle de vetter made a great point about you know publishing employee stories internally and it made me think about intercom Intercom actually make, not every company can do this, but they have fantastic internal designers and content creators. They actually make a comic book story and publish it in, in, in beautiful color and artwork about each employee every year, every one year anniversary. <laughs> uh, and it, it's uh, apparently, it's a, and they base it on something, the characteristics of the employee, stuff they've done during the year. But that's, uh, but so I suppose there are actually companies that, that actually do the, do do the do the employee story thing uh, to the nth degree. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, so <laughs> it is pretty cool. So uh, yeah, um, actually, when people talk to me about culture and co-location, I often would say, "Look at Algolia. Look at look at Intercom." Uh, I'd often do that. But before we kind of shut the the cameras down, I just want to say, um, uh, "You're an inspiration. You're genuine." I don't want to overdo it because it sounds like I come from speaking Silicon Valley ease, uh, but, because uh, that's not me, but you are an inspiration. You're very uh, humble, it's overused that word, but you're a very humble guy. Uh, we were talking about arrogance and stuff earlier. Um, you're definitely the type of founder, uh, that some founders can be arrogant, it depends on, and it can work, but uh, you're definitely uh, the non-arrogant founder. Uh, you know, um, you're, you, I remember you telling me it's all about empowering the employees, you didn't just say it, it kind of came out in about 10 stories over the conversations we've had. I can't think of anyone better to bring in and talk about company culture. Um, you know, you live it as well. Uh, you're, you're a good guy to talk to outside of all of this, so I can only imagine the same internally. Thank you so much um, for coming on to Sastock Engage and sharing your wisdom. Always great. Thank you, thanks for having me. It was great to be with you today. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events 
to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world.